You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Okay. So while the papers are going around, uh, we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, the title of this class, or something close to the title of the class, is um, um, A Jewish View um, of the 21st Century, or A Rabbi's Take on, uh, on the 21st Century. Um, and uh, that's something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. So, you know, obviously, first of all, it being the 21st century and me being a rabbi, I spend a lot of time thinking about uh, what Judaism has to say about the 21st century. But I think that I wanted to take an opportunity because that's sort of in the trenches, right? I think about it on a day-to-day basis and what's happening in people's, real people's lives right now and also what's happening in the world right now, current events, things like that. Um, and you have news out of uh, Israel uh, Last night and this morning, there's, there's, of course, obviously a lot of things happening in, in world affairs, and we can talk about that. But I want to take a step back and talk about the century as a whole. And I wanted to do it first by way of autobiography, okay? Just to kind of tell you where I am in this drama and where I'm coming to the topic from. So um, I was born uh, in Atlanta, Georgia in 1983. Uh, let that sink in for a second, okay? Uh, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1983, um, which, if you uh, keep track of these things, uh, puts me right at the very beginning of what the demographers call uh, Gen Y, or the millennial generation. Okay? Um, it was a, at first called Gen Y because the generation that came before me was Generation X, um, and they didn't know what to call the next generation, so they called Gen Y, um, and then renamed it, I don't know who renamed it, but somebody eventually renamed it to the Millennials, um, referring to the fact that uh, me and people uh, in my generation really came of age around the turn of the millennium. So the idea of a Jewish view on the 21st century is deeply personal to me, because um, this is the, the, the 21st century was really the initiation of my adult life, my, my teenage years leading up to the 21st century. Um, I uh, um, went to college in the fall of 2001, more on that in a second, right? So my, my teenage years were like 1996 through 2000, right? Uh, and uh, uh, so a lot of what we're going to talk about really starts um, emerging during that time and then uh, at the turn of the 20th century as, as well, okay? So, um, so this is really personal to me because this is the, the world that, uh, that, um, that I was born into and am now inheriting and trying to inhabit and make sense of. Um, and I think a lot of us are trying to make sense of this world that we live in, but we are living in a, in a really incredible time. If we were talking about the 20th century, I think one of the things that I would talk about is the proliferation of uh, advances in, in medical science and technology, um, which enable us to get to uh, this point at which there are more living generations today than at any other, simultaneously living generations today than at any other point in human history. It's an incredible phenomenon, right? We have people 
who are in what they, they call it the greatest generation, right? The World War II era uh, generation, uh, the baby boomers, the Generation X, and the millennials, right? And then whatever is going to come after the millennials will probably also coexist with uh, uh, still people in the greatest generation, right? So we're living in this, and that's never happened before in all of human history where you've had um, uh, four or more cohesive uh, generations living side by side trying to make sense of the world together. Um, it's, a, it's really unprecedented and is, I think, a factor in some of the challenges and um, uh, disillusionment um, and upheaval in our time. Okay, so we'll, we'll come to that in a second. But I, so I want to go back to my biography a little bit. So I was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1983. What time do we have until, by the way, Aaron? 12.30, okay. All right, so I want to make sure that we leave enough time for conversation. So, um, so I was born in 1983. Um, I grew up going to um, an Orthodox Jewish day school uh, in Atlanta called the Greenfield Hebrew Academy. Um, and I was, um, uh, especially as I kind of got to thinking age, um, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, um, I became more and more disillusioned with uh, my Orthodox day school um, because the approach to Judaism that I was encountering in my Judaic studies classes um, were, were uh, I would categorize them, um, and I don't mean this as a pejorative because I think that there's a, um, a, a need for this sort of viewpoint in the landscape, but um, a, a sort of fundamentalist approach to Judaism. And when I say fundamentalist, I mean the Bible is literal truth. The words of the rabbis are literal truth. Uh, they are not only literal truth, but therefore also historical fact. Right? Which means that any other belief systems or data or fact system that contradict the words of the Bible and the words of uh, rabbinics um, have to be false or otherwise need to be reinterpreted. Right? So, for example, um, I learned in my science class in, uh, in, in sixth grade, it was you know, seventh grade life sciences class, um, about, uh, um, about the evolution of life on the planet um, and how... Uh, dinosaur fossils have been found that date to 65 to 100 million years old. Um, and I learned that. And then I learned in my Mishnah class that the world was only 5,760-something years old. And I said to my Mishnah teacher, who was a Lubavitch Rebbe, who's a, um, a, still a, 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 a close friend of mine and a teacher of mine, but I asked him, I said, you know, how is that possible that there are 65 million year old dinosaur fossils in, buried in the earth, and the tradition says that the world is only 5,000 years old. And the tradition says the world was created in seven days, and you know, on and on and on. And his answer was, God put 65 million year old dinosaur fossils in the earth to test our faith. God buried them there so that we would dig them up, carbon date them, we would discover carbon dating, carbon date them, and it would test our faith about whether or not we believe in the truth of the Bible and rabbis of the world is 5,000 years old. So, um, so I struggled, because that was the Judaism that I grew up with, um, even though I didn't grow up in an Orthodox household, but you know, when you spend uh, half of your day, every day, um, learning Judaism in that framework, that's basically the Judaism you're growing up with, 
um, especially when your home isn't particularly um, richly observant. We observe on holidays and things like that. Um, so that was the Judaism I grew up with, and I struggled um, as I was in middle school with that Judaism and, and into my high school years with that Judaism uh, because um, it, A, didn't resonate, it, didn't, uh, uh, it wasn't compatible with... Um, not only the natural sciences, but the social sciences that, that I was learning, right? How is it possible that there was the development of all these different civilizations and history unfolds in, in, in such a way, but the viewpoint of a fundamentalist approach to Judaism is that, um, is that the Torah, the Jewish people, uh, Jewish history, in some way stands outside of history, stands outside of Biology stands outside of evolution, stands outside of the development of cultures. So I struggled with that dissonance um, for a long time until ultimately when I was in high school, um, I, discovered, um, uh, 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 I discovered conservative Judaism, uh, essentially, uh, through USY, which is uh, um, the conservative movement's team uh, organization. Um, and I had a really wonderful local USY chapter, and a really led by a really fantastic um, educator, who uh, opened my eyes to seeing uh, Judaism in a totally different way, not as apart from the world um, and distinct from the world, and standing outside of history and science and culture, but as intimately involved in and shaped by and influenced by uh, the real world around us and that has a mission to impact the world of which it's a part. Right? That was something that was also usually lost to me, was that uh, in my day school upbringing, the approach to Judaism was um, Judaism exists for the Jews. Uh, uh, the, the questions that are the most relevant and interesting questions are the kind of like small, narrow Jewish questions. Um, the idea of that, that we, I'm sure, heard tikkun olam, right? Doesn't literally mean in that viewpoint tikkun. Doesn't mean repair of the world. It means uh, um, doing as many mitzvahs as possible in order to bring Mashiach, which is something that's going to help the Jews, but not many other. And when I was in high school, I discovered an approach to Judaism that took that same concept tikkun olam and said that it doesn't have to only mean. It can also mean that. But it doesn't have to only mean that. If you take the word literally, tikkun olam, it literally means to repair the world. And if you look at the Torah, certainly from a, from a, 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 a somewhat expansive vantage point, there's nothing exclusive in the Torah that says that um, the Torah's wisdom is only for Jews. And there's nothing that says that the Torah's wisdom has to be understood as literal historical truth. And there's nothing that says that science has to be anathema to religion. And there's nothing that says that religion shouldn't have a voice in the broader culture and, uh, and a, a hand in impacting the world in which we live. So I, was, I became involved and drawn to um, a, a Judaism uh, that was um, uh, intellectually expansive, open to the wisdom of other traditions and cultures, um, and modern uh, knowledge, science, history, um, uh, uh, literature, etc., etc., uh, uh, and that uh, demanded not only 
uh, a focus on like particular Jewish questions and Jewish issues and, and disciplines involved in Jewish life, although it did demand that, but also demanded involvement and investment in the world around us and the society in which we live. So I was very drawn to that as I was uh, um, in, in high school. Um, and high school is you know, a very um, um, idealistic time. Uh, but my uh, entry into high school basically coincided with uh, the rise and popularization of the internet. Um, and so I was, uh, you know, at, at this very formative moment, um, exposed to uh, ideas from everyone and everywhere at the click of a button, if I wanted to be, right? Which influenced my approach to Judaism, right? I needed a Judaism that could account for the fact that there were all these different viewpoints out there, and how could we say that Judaism represented the only one, right? And as uh, my, my teacher, uh, Rev Zalman Chapter Shalomi, said, is that, that in a previous generation, um, the discussion among religions and within religions, between religions, is who's right. You know, so that one day, you know, um, the end of the world is going to come and like one religious group is going to get to like wag their finger at the other and they're like, nah, 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 boo, boo, right? I was right and you were wrong, right? And that was the sort of approach that you... And when you're... It, when the, the internet sort of explodes that approach, I think, because... Um, it, uh, it grants access to lots of different, lots of ridiculous ideas, but lots of different wisdoms that no one had access to before. Lots of different points of views that no one had access to before. And uh, um, at, at the same time, right, as I was uh, in, in high school, um, uh, partially fueled by this new um, information and communication technology, but in part distinct from it, um, was the rise of an interconnected global world, right? The Clinton years brought the rise of globalization and international trade, right? And there was um, a, a growing sense, which became, I think, really relevant uh, in a little bit later, which we'll get to, um, that, uh, that what happens in America impacts what happens in China in very direct ways and impacts what happens in India and in Central America and in Canada and in the Middle East in very direct ways and vice versa, right? Globalization means that we live in a, live in a deeply interconnected world. And we always lived in a deeply interconnected world, but the world became much smaller in the late 90s than I think any of us really ever experienced. And, um, and, and, and that had really profound implications. So as I was thinking about my Judaism, and thinking about my Judaism being a Judaism of Latakain Olam to make the world a better place, I, I had to reconcile that with the fact that my little tiny actions here, what I buy at Walmart or Target or the, or, or, or the food that I eat has implications thousands and thousands of miles away. And I could either use those uh, acts as ways of repairing the world or destroying it, and there was actually not much middle ground. Now, I can have a small impact in ripping apart the world in the decisions that I make. It may not make a huge difference, but it makes a difference, right? Um, so I wrestled that, and uh, I mean, so in 1996, um, the Summer Olympic Games were in Atlanta. 
right? And um, uh, if you remember, there was a, uh, a bombing at the 1996 Olympics. Uh, I wasn't uh, at Centennial Port that night, but I was in Atlanta that night. Um, and uh, um, so that brings me to the, the next issue, right? Even though the, um, the, the Olympic Park bombing wasn't um, religious terrorism, um, the, the next significant phenomenon, I think, of my life growing up, and I think that we're still struggling with today, is violent extremism. Um, so my, uh, um, so, the, so the fact of being in, in the Olympics in Atlanta, right, being around all those different cultures, right, that was eye-opening to me, that, that my, like, because before 1986, I thought Atlanta was, like, this, like, like little parochial city, and I guess in some ways it was, and then all of a sudden the world was there, um, and so that brought this idea that we live in this interconnected uh, world very, very close to home. Um, so in 2001, like I said, was my uh, freshman year of college, um, and I decided to go to college. Um, what can you do? Uh, I, um, I decided to go to college um, at a joint program between uh, Columbia University uh, and the Jewish Theological Seminary, where I would get two degrees, uh, a degree in some kind of Judaic studies, and a degree in whatever it is I wanted to study, Columbia, which ended up being uh, history. Um, and uh, I was very excited to, uh, you know, I've lived in Atlanta my whole life, to, to go to the, you know, big city and, and, and make my way there. Um, and uh, 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 the, the Tuesday after orientation week, terrorists hijacked planes and flew them into the World Trade Center. And there I was in New York, away from home for the first time in my life, and experiencing September 11th firsthand. And what's that? So I, I mean, I can tell these stories. What? Yeah, no. So I can tell you. So it was hard because there was very little cell phone service um, uh, because uh, all the lines were tied up. Um, eventually, later in the day, I was able to connect with them. Um, uh, but it was—I mean—it was a terrifying uh, time. And I remember, you know, so the next day. Um, you know, the next, because that, that night we were all just kind of in shock, and the next day I went down to Times Square, and, you know, Times Square was empty, save for, like, pe you know, people sitting in suits on the street corners crying. And um, then the next day I went down to uh, Union Square, which was basically the, uh, it was 14th Street, and that's basically as far as they were letting, you know, um, bystanders go downtown at the time. What? Did they My parents? Uh, no, no. Uh, I, I, I mean, in some ways, they thought that, that I was in the safest place I could possibly be because everyone was terrified. No one was flying. No one was going. I mean, right? Um, uh, I'm sure my mom may have wanted me to come home, but um, no. But anyway, so um, so I went down to right, and, and um, I mean, I don't know if any of you were in New York on September 11th, but um, what? You were right by. Wow, wow. So I remember, I mean, I lived you know, near Columbia on, uh, on 121st Street, and you know, I could smell the smoke two or three days later um, just from there. And I remember going down to Union Square, and in those, at that time, um, uh, uh, we were still in the missing persons phase, right? So Union Square was just plastered 
with pictures of missing persons and um, and, uh, and, and, and candlelight vigils. Um, so this is the world that we awoke to at, at the dawn of the new millennium, right? And um, it's a world that um, uh, unfortunately hasn't really gone away. Um, that interconnectivity uh, and uh, access to information, which can be an incredible tool for progress and growth, is also an incredible tool for destruction. Uh, and uh, uh, because so much of the um, uh, of the terrorism and extremism of the 21st century um, is perpetrated in the name of religion, um, it also puts uh, someone uh, who is uh, committed and invested in religious life in a very precarious situation. I think that it correlates very strongly with the rise of, uh, uh, of, of uh, secularism uh, and, uh, and atheism in our time is a sense that um, religion uh, um, uh, you know, may be somewhat helpful to some people, but by and large, it contributes more to the problems of the world than the solutions. Um, Oh, I, no, I finished my four years there. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't come home. You, I can give you their phone numbers. You can call them and ask them why. Um, well, I mean, the, you know, the truth is, uh, um, the truth is that you know, I mean, the, the, you, I, I assume, experience this with your college age and above kids. Even if they wanted me to, uh, um, I, I, you know, I, at that point, I'm a 18 year old with a will of my own, and so unless they're going to come and forcibly remove me from uh, from Manhattan, um, there's a good chance that I wouldn't have listened to them anyway. Um, yeah. No, it's okay. to the ideology that motivates people like the 9-11 hijackers um, and um, is not an effective combat uh, um, for people of other faith traditions uh, to, to hold those views as well, even if it doesn't lead them in that direction. Right? So, uh, so it, it, it seems to me that a, a, a viewpoint of religion that is um, exclusionary of the truths of other traditions, um, and is the sort of nana nana boo sort of uh, approach to religion. Um, I couldn't believe in that religion anymore if I ever did, 
right? Um, you know, and so there was an extent to which I did, right? There's an extent to which I, um, you know, I, I, I believed strongly in the uh, Jewish theology of chosenness, for example. But chosenness, right, being the chosen people. But chosenness is a, is, can be a very dangerous ideology, right? Uh, you know, uh, chosenness uh, can contribute to the same kind of, you know, violent uh, um, extremism uh, that motivated the 9-11 hijackers. So I had to um, uh, reevaluate my theology um, in light of those insights, not wanting to, um, uh, not wanting to approach religion in, um, in, in that kind of dangerous way. Um, at the same time, the, so the no part of it, like why it didn't impact my theology is that um, I actually found, uh, um, I, actually, I actually became more um, deeply invested in religious practice. I don't know, I, the, you know, there's the saying correlation doesn't equal causation. I, mean, I have to like, really examine this. But I became, I became much more uh, um, uh, observant and serious about my Judaism uh, after 9-11. Um, uh, I think because um, I found it to provide me a lot of strength and, and comfort, um, a, a sense of hope and optimism in, uh, in the possibilities of a, of a redeemed world and a peaceful world that is reinforced over and over again in Jewish tradition, right? So, um, so that's the yes and no of it. Does that answer the question? Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so I just, I just want to point out, right, um, that's one of them. I want to point out, I think, what, what are some of the real issues that we're um, now grappling with? What are the like, key critical issues that, um, that, that, were, that need to be addressed or that are going to continue to be addressed in the 21st century um, and, uh, and I think require um, a, a Jewish response? Um, so the first is, like, uh, like we were just talking about, terrorism and religious violence. Um, and it seems to me um, that the uh, um, that there's a trend to respond to that issue with growing secularism. But I actually think that the um, response to bad religion um, is not no religion, but good religion. Does that make sense? Right, so um, uh, so I'll just leave it at that for right now, and, and we can talk more about that if you want to. Okay, so the second is um, global warming and environmental devastation. Right, and this is something that I mean, if you sort of chart this out over the different um, uh, uh, generations, demographics that I mentioned before, uh, this issue charts way higher as a concern among millennials and younger. Than, uh, than older generations, um, because I think we awoke to a world, we were born into a world where there was a rampant awareness that our consumption decisions um, and lifestyles, especially in the developed world, were, um, uh, were, were creating an unsustainable uh, um, uh, conditions for human life on the planet. Right? And so, we are worried, right? Our parents' generation uh, and, and, and older might be kind of worried about what the world will be like that they're going to bequeath to their children. But we actually, I think, are in a situation where we're not only worried about what we're going to bequeath to our children, but what's the world going to be like in 30, 40 years? 
right? When we are um, the age of the boomers, the greatest generation uh, folks now, uh, will this planet be um, habitable, fit for, uh, fit for uh, habitation for human life? Um, and that's a major issue for us, and I think that um, uh, this contributes to um, a- another sort of conflicting sense that I think we have in, in our time of, of simultaneously, because of the internet and the interconnectivity of the world, there's a, a, a rising um, democratization of life, right? I mean, like, Wikipedia is the best example of this, right? Where everybody can contribute and everybody has a voice and everybody can be an expert, right? On the other hand, there's a tremendous amount of disillusionment um, at uh, the uh, inability of, our, of the existing structures to respond to major challenges of our time, right? So um, there's a real dangerous, I think, disillusionment among people in my generation about the efficacy of government to, uh, to solve the big problems and the big questions of our time. And it extends to religious institutions and religious life, which is one of the reasons that the, that the current pope, the new pope, is so revolutionary, because he sees... The, the, the downward trend of the Catholic Church as an outgrowth of that uh, um, experience, right? That we have these major global challenges, and the Catholic Church is preoccupied with homosexuality, birth control, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, um, hiding abusive priests, right? And also, you know, collecting as much money as possible to pay for big building, right? And the, and the revolutionary response of, of this current pope, and I think it's sincere on his part, is to radically shift the church's attention to the needs of uh, uh, poor and impoverished individuals, right? Saying, uh, starting from the top, right? I'm not going to live in a palace. I'm going to live in a small apartment. I'm going to drive my own car, right? I'm going to go out incognito into the streets at night and tend to the poor of Rome, right? Um, with all of which he's doing and telling local priests that your job is to, um, is to tend to the wounded of your flock, right? Um, but our, 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 our uh, disillusioned sense is that government isn't doing that, right? So we have this major crisis that we're seeing of environmental devastation, and government isn't doing that. So what I think is that Judaism and religion, broadly speaking, has a role to play in that. Because we have a tradition, right? Look at the text that I that I that I gave us. Look at text number uh, uh, one. The Lord God took the man. This is the very beginning of the Bible. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to till it and to tend it. Right? Our tradition says to us that yes, we're allowed to use the earth that God has placed us in for our benefit but we also have a responsibility to care for it, right? We can't uh, overread our mandate to be able to utilize the earth. We also have to ensure that the earth remains healthy, fit for habitation for future generations, and also for all other living creatures, right? So, we ha- so I think Judaism has a role to play. If you talk about the takain olam, to repair the world, we have this value embedded at the very beginning, at the very genesis of our tradition that says to us, central to your responsibilities is ensuring that this planet is healthy. The wealth gap. Okay? Uh, Globalization um, has 
done a, a lot of really wonderful things. Um, I think it's created, by and large, a more peaceful planet, even though you know, there are obviously uh, exceptions to that rule, but if you chart the course of human history, we live in the most peaceful era um, ever in human history. There's a lot to be optimistic about. Right? The, the odds of you dying a violent death are way lower in 2015 than they were in 1995 and that they were in like 1455, right? So we're living in a good time uh, and I think globalization and the interconnectivity of our planet has, has played a large part in that. On the other hand, um, it has also contributed to um, uh, serious divisions uh, between those who have and those who don't um, in our country, uh, specifically, but across the world more generally. Right? And the divisions that exist between rich and poor in our country are nothing compared to the divisions that exist between rich countries and poor countries. And the poor countries, by and large, are the ones that uh, we rely on to uh, make our cheap products that we can continue to use and enjoy to uh, enable us to be rich countries. Um, because we don't have to spend all our money on uh, iPods, we can spend just a little bit of money on iPods and then have the rest of the money to be to be rich, right? Which is which is a nice thing. Uh, the downside of it is that um, to get those cheap goods, we have to rely on cheap labor in Africa to mine the minerals, and then we have to rely on cheap labor in China to produce the iPhones, and uh, and then we have to rely on cheap labor here to sell us the iPhones in Walmart, right? So the the um, so. Rising uh, global interconnectivity um, is a good thing, but one of the major challenges as an outgrowth of that that needs to be addressed is the major disparity in wealth that exists in our country and around the world um, that, uh, um, uh, that, that I think has never existed quite in the same way in, in, in human history. Um, so, uh, uh, and, and our tradition, I think, 